I invite you to open with me this morning to Acts chapter 17. I've been working through the book of Acts with you and come uh, now to a famous and a climactic passage in the book. We'll be reading the whole chapter, but I especially want to focus with you on uh, this morning on verses 16 through the end of the chapter. I invite you now to listen carefully. This is God's word, Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city authorities uh, were disturbed, and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately set Paul and, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were, no, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if things were, these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Uh, Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. 
because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, we've been getting good mileage in Pastor Larry's current sermon series from The Princess Bride. And so I thought I would continue our trend this morning. Uh, there's a scene in the middle of that movie. Wesley, as the dread pirate Roberts, uh, meets the criminal mastermind Vizzini. And they enter into a battle of wits. Wesley sets out two glasses. Each of them is to drink one of them, one of which is supposed to be poisoned. And Vizzini is to choose which one contains the poison and then they're both to drink. So uh, 
Vizzini with his dizzying intellect, after much psychologizing of his opponent, he thinks himself clever and he switches the glasses while Wesley is turned. And as he confidently drinks, he proclaims, you think I guessed wrong. I switched the glasses when your back was turned. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well known is this, never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. The trick, of course, spoiler alert, is that both glasses are poisoned and Wesley has built up an immunity to the poison. But without taking that analogy too seriously, I want to say that we find Paul in a similar situation today. We could add uh, his circumstance to those mentioned by Vizzini. Never get involved in a land war in Asia. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Never go in against an Athenian when philosophy is on the line. We arrive at this, this central passage in Acts. And we've gotten here by way of some amazing moments of gospel renewal. Uh, we see it even here in chapter 17 in the verses leading up to verse 16. In, in Thessalonica, uh, as Paul explains the scriptures and as, as uh, people come to faith, there arises this mob, this uproar, and the mob, as it drags believers before the civil authorities, they they say these remarkable words. They say, these men have turned the world upside down. You see, they have turned the world upside down. Even before Paul arrives in Athens, this confession, Christ, not Caesar, is king. This confession is, is coming into contact with other truth claims and, and having dramatic effects. But now there's something new and unique when we come to, when we arrive in verse 16 of chapter 17. Notice in Acts in 17, 1 through 3, who is Paul's audience and, and how does he proclaim Christ? It says he went to the synagogue. This has been his practice. He went to fellow Jews in the synagogue, and in verse 2 it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And here is Paul opening the Jewish scriptures of the, uh, our Old Testament and saying, don't you see, don't you see, look at all that God has said and, and done. It was necessary for Christ, that, that the Christ should suffer, that he should rise and, and ascend in glory. And then likewise, in Berea, we, we find Paul with the same kind of receptive audience pouring over the scriptures to see that it is so. Beginning in verses 16 and 17, Paul's message is the same. 
But his context and the way he preaches, it, it shifts. In verse 17, verse 17 tells us Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace. What was called in, in his day the agora. And here the gospel, it comes into contact with a new set of claim of claims, different modes of thoughts and traditions and ideas, pagans, philosophers. The ancient marketplace was a, a, not just a place for a commercial exchange, but a kind of cultural center. In fact, long before Paul, uh, well before Paul, Socrates, that great philosopher was known to, was said to have dialogued with with individuals in the marketplace. And as we witness this missionary encounter with Greek culture, Luke, I think, has two purposes in, in presenting this to us. On the one hand, he gives us a kind of, of model, uh, a paradigm for... Um, for bringing the gospel to bear in culturally relevant ways and in new cultural contexts as well. On the other hand, I think that and confident that Luke, through this passage, wants each of us to, uh, to feel the power of the gospel. Not just to theorize about uh, about how the gospel comes into con uh, contact with culture, but ourselves, for ourselves, to feel the power of the gospel. And so what I want us to see this morning is just this. The gospel both subverts and fulfills the deepest longings of the human heart. The message of Christianity, it it confronts and critiques our normal ways of living in the world. Here we are uh, uh, pursuing the desires of our heart and Christianity, the gospel, it disrupts us on our way. But Christ also fulfills our longings. And he does so in ways beyond our imagining. The gospel both subverts and fulfills the deepest longings of the human heart. And so if you want one expression for how the gospel and culture meet uh, or how the gospel changes us, the author and theologian Daniel Strange, he's spoken of the subversive fulfillment of the gospel. Let's see it from Acts. First, Paul enters into Athens and he helps us, uh, he helps us to identify what actually are the, the longings, the, the, the deepest of human longings, the basic impulses from which we live. And so I've I pointed out for us that Athens had this reputation as an intellectual center and that's important for Paul's encounter here. But so is another characteristic of Athens. Paul says to his hearers, I perceive that you 
are very religious. And maybe you've heard that famous line from John Calvin who called the human heart an idol factory, producing idols. But similarly, one, one scholar has called Athens a veritable forest of idols. In fact, you did not even have to enter the city of Athens to perceive this. If you approached Athens from the sea as Paul would have done, even entering into the harbor, you would already see that awesome site, the, the Athens temple atop the Acropolis, or, and, and with it the towering statue of Athena, her spear beside her, victorious god, 50 feet tall. Along the road into Athens, you would see sanctuaries even to heroes and to, to mere mortals. In Athens were sanctuaries to Athena and Zeus, Aphrodite, Demeter, Ares, Discuris, Serapis, Delphinia, uh, Delphinian Apollo, Asclepius, Themis, and now you just think I'm making up names. A statue of Poseidon, shrines, houses for Dionysius, Dionysian worship, images of muses, altars dedicated to emperor worship, and on we could go. And so in this context, in the Agora, Paul comes into dialogue with these philosophers, Stoic and Epicurean, uh, the two dominant philosophical schools of his time. And both schools of philosophy have at their heart this, the search for happiness. Or if you want, their, their question is, what is the good life? And they have dramatically different answers to that question, but to these philosophers, Paul would simply say, if you want to understand humans, and if you want to understand the search for happiness or the meaning of life, the nature of reality, all these things that preoccupy philosophy, then look around. I perceive that you are very religious. And rather than immediately critiquing uh, their idolatry, which Paul, Luke tells us, Paul finds it deeply troubling. He's provoked in his spirit. Rather than immediately critiquing this, he finds here something critical to understand about human nature. Fundamentally, Paul wants his audience to see, you were made to worship. There is this irrepressible impulse to worship something, to place your hope and trust in something, to serve something beyond you. And so to show this, Paul, he gestures to all the objects of their worship, and then he brings out his main exhibit, uh, an altar to an unknown God. These altars to unknown gods, we know about them from uh, many ancient sources, but for Paul, this altar represents a religious longing, but pursued in ignorance. 
Again, the author Dan Strange, he puts it this way. These altars dedicated to unknown gods, to an unknown god, they are the cries of distress of a heart torn loose from God. A heart with no inner resting. The cry of distress of a heart torn loose from God, a heart with no inner resting. It reminds me of uh, the uh, opening line from the novelist Julian Barnes in his, uh, he, he begins his memoir this way. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. All persons can, can find in themselves this longing for a God worthy of worship. And this altar, it represents that search, that basic longing. Or again, to offer you an example that will probably strike you as strange. When, when considering, when thinking about atheism, we, are often, we often think of those vocal uh, adherents from the, those new atheists, so-called, of the early 2000s. But in, in 2011, in a popular TED Talk called Atheism 2.0, the atheist Alain de Patin, he spoke of an atheism that he hoped would retain the goods of religion. Instead of ex expressing exuberant thanks to God, to, to Jesus as Christ and Savior, de Baton suggested atheism could praise and thank its heroes. For him, he picks Plato, Shakespeare, Jane Austen. Figures, by the way, we could, who would have found this suggestion inconceivable. But the point is, even as, this, as an atheist, he feels this longing to worship, to praise, to have gratitude toward something, to someone. Paul takes hold of this impulse, and in a way he affirms it, this God you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. And he leads them to the biblical God who, as Paul says, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. Do you hear that? This is Paul saying, this is how you were made. By the creator God, you were made that you should seek him. This is what you were made for. He, Paul says that, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And in fact, Paul captures something of their seeking after God within the, the culture of the Athenians. He takes, the expression from, he takes expressions from two poets, and uh, it, it's a bit difficult for us to determine just who to attribute these to, but uh, Paul, he he fills these expressions with new meaning, but he says, look, even your poets, even your poets have seen that we have our being from God, are dependent 
on God. Even more, Paul says, we are God's offspring. It's in humanity, not in idols, that you ought to seek the image of God. But Paul makes clear for us this fundamental human longing for God because of who you were made to be. And then if he can affirm that in a way in the Athenians, he also critiques and he subverts the, the way that they have uh, followed their longings, the way that they have followed after idols. Uh, and so, uh, and he, as he said this, he could have gestured all around him. But Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples uh, made by, uh, nor is he made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And there's several claims here. First, Paul is affirming for us God's transcendence. God is infinite, so great that he, uh, he can't be contained by a temple in this spot or that spot. In fact, in the Old Testament, as Solomon, Solomon himself affirmed this at the dedication of the temple, of Israel's first temple, he prayed to God. He prayed saying, will God indeed dwell on earth? He's marveling. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. And so for all this religious longing and uh, to have a God to worship and serve, Paul would say in seeking to bring God down to make him accessible, you've lost the true God. And he affirms God's transcendence, and then he affirms God's perfect sufficiency in himself. God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You see, what Paul critiques here is that thought, ah, if I serve God, if I appease God, with sacrifices, with obedient living, if I serve God by offering gifts to him, then I will enjoy his favor. Paul brings this radical critique that, that destroys the very foundation of their pagan worship. And in the end, he will call this forest of idols mere images formed by the art and imagination of man. See, if Paul at first affirms these basic longings to seek God, that affirmation is woven throughout with a, a critique that, that cuts to the heart of their idolatry. And so his audience and we with them, we come to see that the path from not knowing, from, from not believing the gospel, that the path from there to trusting in Christ is not a straight line, but a U-turn. 
It's a matter of repenting. Repenting and believing. Paul proclaims the true God in this marketplace of ideas, subverting and fulfilling our deepest longings. And maybe we start to see in Paul's example, maybe we start to see an, uh, a model, an example for how we might bear witness in our own context. But then, as I said, I think we, we must go on. We must go further to see for ourselves and to feel for ourselves the power of this gospel. So the last thing I want uh, us to see this morning is this. The fulfillment that the gospel gives is better, not only than the uh, pathetic idols that we have pursued, but it's better than we could have ever hoped or dreamed. When Paul comes to the conclusion of his speech, he emphasizes two things. The resurrection of Christ and the coming day of judgment. And if we had imagined that, that Paul's purpose in this speech is simply to appeal to, to nature, simply to say something like, look at the world, see that there is a God, then we, we will have missed something basic about Paul's intent. Paul does not simply appeal to nature, but uh, now in, in view of the end of his speech, um, we can see more clearly, Paul proclaims for us the beginning and the end of the biblical story. He proclaims God's work at of creation, women and men, uh, in God's image, made for worship. And now he proclaims God's work of consummation. God has fixed a day on, in which he will judge the world. And Paul is saying, you are to find your life's, you are to find your life interpreted by this beginning and by this end. But he also gives us a remarkable fact. God has entered into the middle of this story, of this history. In verse 31, God will, it says, God will judge the world by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And think how stunning this is, that this God who, who is so transcendent, who, who cannot be contained in temples, this God exalted and in need of nothing from us, he freely makes himself known. He gives you Jesus. You see what Paul says here of Christ. Paul can speak of the times before Christ as times of ignorance. But now in Christ, God gives you himself. He, he makes himself known. This God who could not be brought down or contained in uh, this temple or that temple, he himself descends 
The times of ignorance are past. You were made to seek God and to feel your way toward him. And the stunning truth is this. God in a man has come to you. Has made himself known. Some of you might know Dorothy Sayers' mystery novels with the gentleman detective Lord Peter Whimsey. Uh, in the course of those uh, many stories that she tells, there's this character that appears, a woman named Harriet Vane. And over time, Peter, Lord Peter, and Harriet fall in love and they marry. But there's an interesting thing about, about Harriet in the novels. She, like her author, Dorothy Sayers, is described as one of the first women to graduate Oxford University. And in that way, she seems to, to represent Sayers. So as one person puts it, it looks as though Sayers looked into the world that she had created, fell in love with her lonely hero, and wrote herself into the story. God enters the story of creation. He does so in love. Paul says before you, Christ, the risen, exalted King, in order to turn you back to the God of love. He says, turn back, repent. Christ's resurrection, it announces the the presence of God in history. Uh, his resurrection announces that uh, in his reign as king, he will one day judge the world. Now is the time to repent. And you should remember and, and know and be assured this as well. This king who will judge the world is the very king who on the cross himself bore the righteous judgment of God. God has entered the story in love. The Son of God has already borne the judgment you deserve as you take refuge in Him. See, this God fulfills your longings and more. Can you believe it? This God who needs nothing but who gives you himself, take refuge in him. Take refuge in him and this God will satisfy your spiritual thirst. Take refuge in him and as you see the glories of Christ, you will find your heart turned back from idols to worship and serve the living God. Let's pray. Our great God, we are stunned again and again by the wonder of your gospel. We are amazed at the way that this work you have done in Christ meets and answers our every human longing. It meets and answers the very way in which you have 
created us to uh, seek after and to find and to know you. And we are amazed at the way that even uh, in Christ, you make yourself known in, uh, with an intimacy and a splendor that would seem impossible to us as creatures. We pray that as we hear this wonderful news of the gospel again, that you would renew our hearts and turn us back from idols to adore and to worship and to serve you, our great God. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior, saying together, Amen.